This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Nikolai Yakovenko. Nikolai is the founder and CEO of Deep NFT Value, which uses machine learning to price blue chip crypto assets like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes. He has spent his career working on deep learning at some of the most notable firms in the world, including Google, Twitter, NVIDIA, and Point72. Our conversation starts with AI's potential and Twitter's mishaps. We then turn to Nikolai's investment experience and why he most recently decided to build a business that prices NFTs. Please enjoy my conversation with Nikolai Yakovenko. Hi, Eric. Hey, how are you? I thought a fun place to start this conversation would be that since the release of chat GBT, there's been a lot of armchair AI folks. It seems a tradition in the Twitter world that whenever a new topic comes along that has people's attention, suddenly there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of experts we didn't know about the week before. So I thought a fun place to start would be as someone who actually has training in artificial intelligence and spent his career there. What is this all about? right now? Is this something that really is revolutionary and impressed everyone in the community that you operate in? Or is this mainstream catching on to something that's a technology that's been around for a while that suddenly has everyone's attention? Oh, I mean, I think it's a pretty big deal. The technology is definitely much more powerful than it was five, much less 10 years ago. So people who are saying this has been around for a while, I mean, they could technically be right in some ways, but not really. I mean, I do absolutely think that this is going to transform a bunch of fields We've seen that already, I guess, in like little previews where in ChatGPT, they can actually answer your question in a way that's usable. My example is something like asking for the plot of Superman and it just tells you the plot. Nobody could have had that even a few years ago. You can argue whether maybe that was possible a year, year and a half ago, but that product's never been out. Same as people see with some of the self-driving car stuff. I mean, I guess now that example is a little bit dated, but I remember when it first came out, it was exciting. I mean, the fact that the car could follow the lane was pretty cool and was a real thing. So I would put it into that category. I think it's a pretty big deal. What is it that moved it to that point? So like, it's funny, those two examples to me are quite different. The self-driving car, I feel like, I guess it's one of those things that's technically right, where you, know, you had a car and if it would veer into the other lane, the steering wheel would shake, but it wouldn't mean that you should go take a nap and let the car drive. And then ChatGPT is answering questions 
But to get to that point, help me understand what the technical achievements were that you can ask chat GBT anything and get a reasonable answer back. I guess there's been two or three breakthroughs with chat GBT. I mean, the first one was just building these really, really big models. So the ability to scale to these models, I mean, they're tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times bigger than the previous state-of-the-art models from a few years ago. I was part of a team at NVIDIA that actually worked on these models, and they still do. They have sort of an alternative to GPT-3, which is a bit more open source that you can find on the internet. So just the ability to build these models at all, to be able to converge them, to have them give reasonable answers at all. Like, it's not obvious. You need a lot of techniques to get big models to work together. You're talking about very large numbers of numbers, very small changes. We can get into the technical aspect, but it's actually not that easy to use all that power. So that's one thing. And that actually is weirdly enough kind of tied to the computer vision problem, like lane detect, because deep learning really did take off with image models. That happened maybe almost 10 years ago now, I guess maybe a little bit more recent than that. But you had a situation where image recognition, things like, is this a dog or a cat? Is this a picture of your friend or a celebrity? These things, of course, have always been around, but they didn't work that well. And it really took deep learning to make them sort of in that accuracy level where they're usable enough for fun projects, for Facebook, for all of these things that are out there now. So the technology was really developed for computer vision, and then people sort of backfitted into language models. So that was kind of a long process, but I would say that these things are connected. And then the other aspect, which language models are unique, is really like the way that it's able to do the plot of Superman thing is by training on massive amounts of web data. So instead of collecting label data, like your dog versus cat, like people tagging pictures of their friends, kind of the way we've done it for image models, just being able to train on text from the web in this sort of, quote unquote, unsupervised manner. It's been around for a few years, but it's really kind of breaking through to the mainstream. Yeah. So you have a lot of experience in this space, which we'll get into. But for someone like me, or maybe the average person who's logged on, I think we just start asking questions and it can feel like I think when you're near technology and you get this experience where maybe you don't have the same training, it feels like magic. I'm curious for someone who understands the space, what are the type of questions you asked right away to see if this was the real deal or just a bunch of BS? When the first version of ChatGPT came out, I started just asking basic factual questions. What's the largest bird? Things like that. And then to check if these are actually the correct answers. And it was pretty good. I mean, it contradicted itself a little bit. The answers weren't like 100%, but they were pretty accurate, more knowledgeable than me, for example, or somewhat comparable to someone who did a few Google searches. So that's pretty good. And of course, the amazing thing to me was it took like a minute to believe that it wasn't actually searching Google Live. I mean, the idea that all of this knowledge was better than the model, that the model could be run completely offline without being connected to the internet. So that's kind of a little bit the way that these models are designed. I mean, if you talk to a scientist in this area, the thing that the model pre-training is actually optimizing for is something called the compression rate, which really means that you are trying to take just a giant document base, I mean, many, many, many terabytes of text on the internet and trying to compress it to like, a reasonably sized model, which is just only huge as opposed to gargantuan. I don't think that's particularly insightful or interesting for a normal person, but it can be, right? You can think of your brain or any other intelligent creature sort of taking a bunch of information, which has a lot of redundancy to it, a lot of it, and condensing it to a smaller piece. So for me, absolutely, I, I first just did sort of like memory recall tasks. But since then, I mean, it's evolved a lot. I don't know what version they're on. They're not really labeling it version one, two, three. But, you know, when you use ChatGPT, they'll tell you when the model was last updated. And they're updating it a lot, and it's gotten a lot better. I can sort of try to guess how it's done that. But I think its phrasing is better. The context is better. And now these days, I would do things like 
write me a poem on this topic or write me a sort of a limerick about something that happened in crypto. And it's getting decent. What's an example of like a question that to a normal person wouldn't seem intuitively tricky, but to something like ChatGPT proves it's actually quite hard for it to answer? Things like take our conversation and summarize it into a poem. I would do things like that. So you have to have context to the previous conversation where you can say it and it knows what that means or he or something like that. So I think actually one of the early questions I asked the first version was I asked a bunch of martial arts and jujitsu questions going deeper and deeper into the weeds. And it kept up reasonably well. I don't know if the model actually knows who John Donaher is, but it was able to sort of guess what John Donaher's favorite techniques might be. And then you can ask what else would he recommend or something like that. And it keeps the context. So that's pretty cool. To your point, that's not difficult for a human, but it just does it flawlessly, really. Some people have given me this thing of self-driving cars and there's a bus full of children and a car running at it. How does a computer decide the value of life? What's like an example of ChatGPT, or at least as you've seen it, I think like people have tried to show these examples of trying to push it off the rails. What's an example in that type of machine learning where it gets very confused? I mean, I think anything it doesn't know, it sort of starts bullshitting, so to speak. Or if you point out that the model makes a contradiction, or there's other sort of little small things where you say you write a poem or write some story or give it some prompting text and you're like, okay, but make it different. And it just doesn't really do that. If you understand mechanically how these models work, a lot of these things are not surprising. So to go back to your car thing for a second, for example, that question implies a lot of context, which is like, well, there's an intelligent creature thinking the trade-offs between turning the wheel A and B, but that's not what the model is doing at all. What the model is doing is like, well, geez, what was more likely to be done here in the previous training data? Does it turn the wheel left or turn it right? That's how the Tesla self-driving gets into like these weird cases with emergency vehicles and other anomaly situations on the side of the road. Because it's not really trained for logic. It's just trained to imitate its training data. What is the most likely next action? Which is correct most of the time, but it doesn't have really any ability necessarily to revert to common sense or logic, which is true of this model as well. Although here, I think the things that I really notice is it's a recursive generative model, which means it's actually writing your answer a word at a time. So you can't finish writing the sentence and then edit it. It's just not set up for that. You absolutely could build a model to do that, but that's just not what this one's doing. Now, in practice, it's not really generating a word at a time. It's doing a beam. So it's generating a word, and then it's doing like a mini little tree. Like, what are the five most likely words? And from each of them, have branch off and then find a path that is sort of has the most likely path, essentially. It's kind of like the way we talk. We don't know what we're going to say a minute from now. We just sort of speak a word at a time, a sentence at a time. Our brain probably previews the future a little bit, but not very far. I like that visual a lot of the tree and the brain doing it, because I think that the experience feels more like a query of like Googling as I'm asking a question or getting a Wikipedia page and then reading it and then solving the answer and coming back to you. I think it's even more impressive that it's trying to do word by word. It's pretty amazing that it works. And yes, I mean, it does use some tricks. Like as they try to reduce compute, my guess is they probably go even closer and closer to just a word at a time because that's by far the cheapest way to do it. You can imagine... If you want to generate multiple words, there's like an exponential compute cost to it, which I'm guessing OpenAI probably wouldn't want to pay. Back to your compression thing. This is even what I thought we were going to talk about, but I just think I find it fascinating. I saw some crazy stats, the amount of money they were spending per month on compute. Is it that hypothetically, all this stuff wasn't a year ago, or the people who thought about it weren't willing to spend this much money to prove the potential value? I think that might be right. It does get to sort of the business model, which I think, for example, Ben Thompson did a great job of discussing where 
a lot of the internet businesses that we have now are based on zero marginal cost. The idea that delivering the marginal search result, the marginal movie streaming kind of goes to zero. And this isn't necessarily true in the case of these models. Like actually, there's a high upfront cost, but then there's also even a marginal delivery cost potentially. But either way, yeah, I mean, I think it still is surprising to me that no one built this sort of amazing interface in the past year and a half because their claim was that ChatGPT is based on GPT-3, which has been around for a year and a half, which is a pretty long time in this space. But it does seem that OpenAI is just really aligned for spending large amounts of money to prove that technology works. And maybe that is the way to go. And to echo Ben Thompson, I mean, I think it's possible that it could turn out that unlike image models, where it turns out these image generative models can be quite small, and people were able to replicate them for hundreds of thousands of dollars. In the case of these giant text models, that may not be the case. They may be really this hard and this complicated and this involved, and you have to crawl the whole web. And maybe if you want something recent, you have to update it every week. And if that's the case, then maybe OpenAI does have a great business model where people will build applications off of it, but they're going to need to license to support technology. And not just the IP of it, as in the past, but actually license the model, even the serving of the model. I mean, that would be good for them, I guess, from a business perspective. Do you like the idea that people are going to use something like chat GBD3 more than Google now? Or do they have different use cases in your mind? I wouldn't say more than Google. Probably not. I mean, it would have to work much better for anyone to switch over. But I do think that it's better at some things already, for sure. And I think in a sense, Google has been going in this direction for quite some time. So if you remember, they got into a lot of trouble for, you know, Yelp really wanted Google to link to Yelp, as opposed to like pull out the answer from Yelp. And in a sense, not to justify Google's sort of uh, monopolistic practices or whatever you want to call it, you can sort of see where they were going. They saw this coming. This idea that when I was at Google quite some time ago, there was this orthodoxy even within Google that Google really should be these 10 blue links. But even then, I mean, when I was there a long time ago, we were getting out of it. Certain things, you should just give the answer. That's not going to be the case for everything. For a lot of commercial queries like travel, do you really want an answer or do you want to be sent to the best hotel? It's not going to replace Google, I don't think, but I definitely think that it augments some of the experience. I mean, what I think is a lot more interesting for OpenAI and Microsoft is other applications in terms of email, text documents, potentially editing tools. There's just a lot of other vectors which Google isn't set up for at all. But having the search vector does get people in. I don't know. It's very interesting. I mean, the truth is we don't really know. No, it's definitely a great example. Like I do enjoy when Google just gives me the answer. Like I don't want to click through the pages, especially when it's to your point, that first version of just factual information, I was trying to look up a point about colonial currency. I just wanted to know a factual thing. And normally it would be like, you ask a question like that, maybe it links it to Wikipedia, you click a few links, you get your answer. But it just was a really obscure web page where someone had wrote like a little paragraph and it was the answer. And Google just served it up for me and it was perfect. I didn't need to go any further. And even in my simpler example of the plot of Superman or something like less obscure, is it really a great experience that it sends you to Wikipedia? You have to find the right section. You can just tell me the answer. So you are at Google, and then you move to Twitter, which I think is a really fun topic because the Elon Musk takeover, but again, we've got a lot of people who think that they know a couple of things, how they'd run Twitter, if it's being run well or not, but this idea of the algorithm, which comes up in Google, that there's some sort of technology that impacts the information we receive every day. I'd be curious if you could give people some context of your work at Twitter and what you did there. Yeah, so I was there some years back, I guess, 2015, which is a very interesting time with the election and all kinds of interesting Twitter things. That was fun. I joined this team called Cortex, which I guess still exists, but it was started to do specifically machine learning and deep learning on Twitter stuff. 
Most of the team worked on images, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. The ability to recognize, is this a good image or bad image? Does it have really objectionable content in it was pretty important. And that was probably the team's biggest contribution while I was there, which I don't have anything to do with. But I got to work on this pilot project for specifically what you're talking about, which is content recommendation. We were there just at the time when Twitter switched over from just showing you the latest tweets to showing you the timeline, you know, ranked tweets. The initial model for that was, I don't want to say hacky, but it was kind of simplistic and not very machine learning driven, but it was still worked. And then we were in the process of making that more intelligent, interesting, integrating more generalized features. So it's definitely hard even to imagine the way Twitter used to be. Actually, now you can, because now I guess in Twitter Blue, you have the tab which is just following, which is just in timeline order. And seeing that, I'm like, my God, I probably followed too many people, but just giving people the power to just spam you with insane retweets that make no sense. As much as I don't love the Twitter algorithm, and I have a lot of the same criticisms other people have, I mean, the alternative is not great. I mean, unless you follow a very small number of people, just this unfortunate way that one person can just spam you just by retweeting a bunch of stuff. We go over some of the Twitter objections. And Abby, I think I have a fun way to think about this is that and you talked about this in the past. If someone was trying to like reverse engineer the algorithm, and I think people who are influencers who care a lot about that stuff, whether they're optimizing for likes or for followers, they can like do stuff with the algorithm. What's an example of reverse engineering the algorithm to get that desired output? I think that happens a lot, unfortunately. So at core, what is the algorithm trying to do? This may have changed, but I know what the early version was, and I don't think it's actually changed that. At a high level, it's trying to show you tweets that fit a couple of requirements. One is they want to show you tweets that are more likely to be engaging. So it really is just predicting your engagement with a tweet. Now, that means it becomes kind of important what you mean by engagement. By the way, this is why tweets with images do disproportionately well. And I think occasionally, especially with Elon, they pushed new changes, which forgot to sort of adjust for that. And then your whole timeline is tweets with images. And it's not obvious whether it's because image tweets are better or just because the way engagement is measured is different because, oh, like doing an expansion of an image, that counts as an engagement. But if it's a text, what is an engagement? A retweet or a profile visit? You're comparing apples to oranges. So you have a little bit of that, but it's still, it's trying to balance again three functions. One is how likely are you to engage with this individual tweet? Two, it is trying to give you more recent tweets. So a super engaging tweet from five hours ago is inherently less interesting than a super engaging tweet from 30 minutes ago. There's some sort of exponential decay there. The algorithm doesn't really show you tweets that are more than a day old, but that's mostly a recall thing. So there's a recency, there's an engagement, and then it does introduce some level of variety. Even though sometimes it feels like it's showing you tweets from the same three people, it's not really supposed to do that. It is supposed to at least mix them up and show you different people. In theory, different topics, but not really. In general, actually, Twitter's topic recognition isn't that great, which I think we know because sometimes it does the injected like, oh, this is about technology. Are you interested in technology? Which kind of highlights the issue here. If these things are bucketed into 500 clusters, the clusters are too general, perhaps. Yeah, it's funny. As you were talking about it, in preparation for this, the research team, there's this person on crypto. I think their name was OX Carnation. And every tweet oh my God. <laughs> had... <laughs> Hentai, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. Hopefully not that bad. But inappropriate Japanese cartoon pictures in every post. But they were an interesting person, and I didn't know what was going on, like why I was in my feed a lot. And I was like, if my kids see this picture, they're going to ask a lot of questions. So I just did like the unfollow thing. And then someone this morning was like, Eric, he was doing that to trick the algorithm into getting more exposure. I was like, oh, that was what was going on. 
he's a very famous case. And yes, agreed. I see way too many tweets from Carnation. Even though it's a great account, I don't really want that to be 20% of my feed either. But yeah, that's a great example. And I think people have seen that in general, if you just add good pictures, because the algorithm is pretty simple. It's not really trying to figure out, okay, you've seen enough GM, good morning, like nice pictures. It's still kind of mostly done on an individual level. The other issue is also, so for the engagement factors, there are person-to-person features. The features tend to be something simple like this. Have you engaged with this person more than one and a half times in the past week? The biggest issue there is that if they keep showing you a lot of tweets, you will engage more. So you sort of keep that there. But if you stopped engaging, you just stopped using Twitter or the algorithm had a reset or something, then you lose accounts that you used to engage with a lot. And that's like a hard thing to balance because some accounts tweet a ton, some accounts tweet very rarely. They used to have all these separate systems to be like, hey, here's a person you historically engage with a lot who doesn't tweet a lot. So we'll go out of your way to pull in those tweets. But I have a feeling that that kind of went away. My guess, I mean, it's completely guessing. My guess is those are the kind of things that got turned off in Elon's cost cutting, essentially, because those things are very cool, but they're kind of hard to measure. So they can be designed qualitatively and you can run an experiment, people can enjoy it. But then if you have to justify it after it's like launched, like no one's there to argue for that feature again, because it is a lot of recall. So I do feel like my friends who don't tweet a lot, their stuff got lost. But then even people who do tweet a lot, if you don't engage enough, you also lose it because then the engagement ratios go down. It's really quite a mess. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been using Twitter for that long, but I definitely noticed, I tell people it feels like you've taken a wrong turn with a car, where if you just started clicking some links, whatever, maybe it was an interesting topic, suddenly your entire timeline changes. And I have to go back and think like, yeah, I used to see Patrick's tweets all the time. Now I don't see them at all. If I go click it nine times, suddenly it will start to appear in my feed again. If you're lucky, I mean, I try to do that. But again, with a new regime, not to criticize them too much, I feel like that feature is not as good as it used to be. I don't see your stuff the way I used to. And then I have to click a few. And then maybe I'll start seeing it tomorrow. Maybe I won't. Also, maybe there's like a math where like you need to tweet something. It needs to be sort of above the bar. There are just all these conditions. So I do think, unfortunately, it does really incentivize people who send a lot of tweets, who make sure that all the tweets are engaging, a lot of the tweets have pictures. Also, certain kind of things get retweeted, which obviously, as my friend Razib says, the tweets travel, I guess that's a term. So people try to send the kind of stuff that would get retweeted and therefore get exposed to more communities. Then people definitely try to game that. What's your view on the amount of people it takes to run Twitter? And this is just kind of a global thing about tech is that you hear these stories of Instagram or WhatsApp, and I think it was even used as for other companies, a small amount of engineers can do a tremendous amount. And then there's this bloated middle management that's unnecessary. What's your take on that? Obviously, they maybe they cut some stuff that you think they should have kept. And it doesn't have to be Twitter specific. I'm just kind of curious about this topic in general. It's a very frustrating topic because there's good points on both sides and the truth is somewhere in the middle. But it's like rational and people take these like really extreme views. And they'll use these single examples. I mean, these people, I mean, I find myself muting a lot of these 27-year-old VCs who know everything. And they have that comment. They're like, did you know WhatsApp was run by 20 people and they serve half a billion people. It's like, first of all, you know it because you read it on the internet. You don't know these people. You don't know anything about them. And two, like, I mean, they were fulfilling a very specific thing, like WhatsApp. It was trying to do a very specific thing, which was messaging. They weren't doing any real research. So you could do that with 22 people. You could run it very tightly. But WhatsApp was a very limited platform. Obviously, Facebook expanded it, much to the WhatsApp founder's chagrin. But you have to think about that. Just think about that logically. 
could you run Tesla engineering with 22 people? Of course not. You have too many details. <laughs> you have too many things you have to get into. You have to run experiments. You have to try things that sometimes don't work out. You know, if you're doing WhatsApp, you're in theory not doing any R&D. R&D is inherently inefficient. That's one thing I would say. This actually bothers people in R&D sometimes. I mean, I know plenty of really good engineers who just after a while get upset. They're like, I think I'm a good engineer, but I can't tell because nothing I do ever launches or makes it out of development. So I remember having to explain to them that, that you see on average, these companies that invest into R&D do really well. So you can't be worried about whether your thing makes sense to production or not. There's a whole system to it. I mean, taking Twitter specifically, though, I mean, the problem with Twitter was this. There were way too many initiatives that within those initiatives were underfunded. They had the worst of both worlds. And of course, the legacy system they had to maintain, which as you can see with Elon, given how many times things are broken, it's not that easy. So they had a situation where you know, people forget. People want to say this openly. It seems silly now, but Twitter really thought and talked like, okay, well, you had Microsoft, then you had Google, then you had Facebook, now you have Twitter. They really thought they were the next company. They expanded that way in terms of hiring people, offices, things that they've gone. They spent billions, literally billions on buying and building an ad network. Most of that ended up being divested. And now their end up was only much simpler. They ran their own servers, A, because they wanted to be a big company. Two, AWS wasn't really as prominent as it is now. So they just did a lot of things that really weren't that illogical, perhaps, but did require large investments. Having said that, for the people who are like, we should shrink all of it, beyond the maintenance issue, I mean, Twitter does benefit from launching some of the features. So for example, Spaces. My question would be, if Spaces wasn't already a success or didn't already work, would an 80% smaller Elon-led Twitter be able to launch it? I don't know. But I think Spaces is huge. I think from a product perspective, it's unquestionably not only a success, but a big, big thing. And I'm not even saying in terms of attracting people to Twitter or making money. It was a new form and Twitter clearly won it. Spaces is way bigger than Clubhouse, which I'm not even sure it exists anymore. People aren't doing that on Facebook, really. I mean, they have Facebook Live. I guess some people use it. Twitter Spaces is a real thing that takes effort and engineering. And if you have the mentality, we're going to run this on a shoestring or with the smallest number of people possible, how do you have space to do new things like that? Yeah, it's a great example especially for this world of how big Clubhouse was and how it felt. And I learned a lot from Clubhouse. And then as fast as it entered my life, it just disappeared. And suddenly Spaces, which was like, the first time we turn it on, it would break, it still breaks. But to see how, more so to me, I mean, do you think that Spaces is an impressive technology? Or do you think it's that Twitter is such a large network and that group of people wanted to communicate? And so we were already here, so why leave? I mean, it's both. I mean, I think... As much as Spaces has its problems, it does scale. You've had Spaces with tens of thousands of people on during the SPF uh, that everyone was excited about for like a week and a half. But even now, there's plenty of Spaces. I mean, some of the crypto and NFT morning and afternoon Spaces still have thousands of people and it works okay. I mean, it rugs all the time, but it's predictable. Actually, that's kind of a good analogy for a lot of the crypto stuff. As my friend Fubar likes to say, the technologies that win are really Often the people who sort of launch something simple, quick, relatively robust with known edge cases and don't bother fixing them. If you try to fix every edge case, it just takes too long and the system gets too complicated, which I think in some ways was what Twitter and everyone else tries to do. But in the case of Spaces, I think they actually did a good job. They launched something that's scalable enough and its failure cases are like, we kind of expect them. At this point, it could never improve and the social element, because it is a social element, of course, being able to retweet things. You're already on Twitter checking your news, your timeline. You're like, oh, there's a space. That's cool. The invitations seem to work reasonably well. The technology around it is decent. 
and even the embedded tweets, being able to ask questions via tweets is great. I've been trying to get people to use that because when you allow random people on stage, I mean, they're just crazy about 70% of the time. So <laughs> just DM the question, <laughs> which by the way, Clubhouse ended up building out. Clubhouse actually ended up building a lightweight version of Twitter to allow for like text messages and group chats and things like that. It seems in practice, it's so much easier to back chat into Twitter than back Twitter into chat. 100%. So you left Twitter. So you're in big tech. You did the Google Twitter stuff. Seems to be like a great path. And then you decide to leave to go to high finance to 0.72, a famous hedge fund run by Steve Cohen, one of the best investors. I'm curious what that transition was like moving from big tech to Wall Street. It's something I'd wanted to do for a long time at some point, just because when I was at Google in my early 20s, I was playing a lot of high stakes poker. So I got to know a lot of hedge fund people, including very talented and pretty well-known guys. So I was always around that space. So I had this presumption that a lot of these hedge fund people are very interesting, very smart people. And obviously, they always say, come work for us, give it a shot. You're obviously smart and all that. But I never really felt like I had any particular edge. As a gambler, you think about that. Because that's the problem, right? It doesn't matter if you're referred to by the head of the firm, you still get interviewed by a bunch of MIT people who think they're smarter than you. And they're not entirely wrong. So what ended up happening was, I think, as these large language models, the GPT-3s came about, we worked on them at NVIDIA, literally in my team. I was like, man, it would be really interesting to sort of be on the other side, to be sort of a, a user as opposed to a developer. Let's build some applications around using these text-based models for things. And I think high finance was the pretty obvious application where people just really care about accuracy, where being 2% or 10% more accurate does matter. So you can actually at least potentially build that investment. A lot of the problems with a lot of the NLP GPT-3 stuff a few years ago, while it was already working, the problem is... If your application is like, oh, what are my customers saying? Aggregate my customers' comments, something like that. You can do that better, I think, even then with deep learning models, figure out the sentiment, figure out the common topics. All these things could be done better with deep learning models, I think, even then. But the question is, was the business model really worth it? If you have this tacky, simple system that's easy to deploy, that's, let's just say, 70% accurate versus 90% accurate, does it really make a difference? In finance, it obviously does. That was kind of the high-level idea to sort of build a team around that, around mostly text, understanding text and seeing how it affects the market in real time. Were you close to the investment process where you kind of understood, okay, I'm working on this model, I'm trying to like gain this edge and invest in a sector? Or were you working on something that was really a hard technical problem and then other people were using your tool in order to invest money? Pretty close to the investment side. I mean, I think you have to be. You can't just build a core technology that gets a little bit lost in the weeds. So we tried really hard to avoid that, actually. The thing, though, about a big multi-manager fund is there's a lot of sort of meta things that are relevant that wouldn't necessarily work for you in a small fund. So just to give like one simple example, if you can say, okay, there's this news story, and you can just tell which news is significant, which news is not significant. Because that's the thing about it. If you're trawling Bloomberg or something like that, I mean, you're never going to miss a story, honestly. But a lot of the stories don't matter. So a story can be like, oh, Google is opening an office in Singapore. That doesn't matter. That's not significant in any way whatsoever. For a smaller cap, I mean, I guess you can say any news is significant, but certainly them opening an office in Singapore, oh, that could be interesting, right? On the other hand, automatically reported stuff, things like, oh, the CFO sold this many shares. It's like, no, like that's an automatic sale. That's completely insignificant. Although people will try to read into it. A lot of people try to do that. Like, oh my God. They're like, listen, Zuckerberg has a setup. 
where Zuckerberg automatically sells Facebook shares in the market every single day for multiple millions, every single day. It's a predetermined thing. Just applying common sense like that. But again, if you're not at a big fund, figuring out whether news is significant or not may not be something you could make money from. You'd have to actually have a strong view. You'd have to see if it's directional. Predicting whether something goes up or down is way harder than being like, is it correlated with increased volume? I think my experience was starting with the data science and machine learning stuff. It started when it wasn't as good. But I remember it was probably like more than 15 years ago when hedge funds started mapping the flight data from private jets. People were predicting IBM was doing a takeover because they were watching jets fly to Armok, New York, wherever they were based. And they kept landing in a small airport somewhere else. I was like, that's a creative edge. But then obviously it gets found and turned into something and everyone has it. So this push towards the AI, machine learning, data science, I think when it first happened, this is probably 10 years ago, it seemed like such BS at the time because of what people were promising. But it does feel like this time around, now that I've seen a lot deeper and working in it a little bit closer, I'm actually way more impressed with some of the results. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, in both of those examples, though, there's two levels, which is what problem are you solving? But then also, how are you building strategically? And in any case, if you want to build out a machine learning team, that's going to be expensive. It's going to take time. I mean, if you can build a team in a year and a half, you're very far ahead of the game. So I think a lot of these things are strategic. So people will choose a good problem in order to be able to not just get a budget, but to hire good people, set up good data. You've read, I'm sure, The Man Who Solved the Markets. I mean, great book. They talk about that. I mean, like Renaissance, they wandered in the wilderness for years, doing a little bit of this, doing a little bit of that, collecting data for like no good reason, and then later it pays off. To me, the exciting, but also a little bit the frustrating part is you really do need to build teams that are capable of solving interesting multiple problems, but you do need to be solving a specific problem also. So it's kind of a trade-off between doing things that are short-term, which get people excited and are important, and longer-term, which is necessary. So let's talk about a specific problem, which is trying to figure out the price that a crypto punk is going to trade at next. How did you end up working on something like this? Again, being a gambler, a lot of my friends in poker were into crypto early as I have been and many of us were passively. And then people started getting into these NFTs, specifically the punks in, I'd say, late 2020. So I started seeing these things pop up. Again, on Twitter, just a Twitter bot, people would mention these things, show the pictures. You could see the speed of transactions. And by early 2021, this is when I think there was probably the first run-up, really, really high volume. And punks were trading for low double digits, maybe occasionally even lower, something like that. You could buy a nice punk for 15 or 17 back then. And just seeing that, it was just an interesting feed to me. I was like, I know my friends are into this stuff. It seems pretty obvious that based on the picture, like I can guess why some of these are trading for 17 or why some are trading for 50. So that's just something that sort of came up and I sat on for a little bit. And then when you look at the data, you realize there's actually features. So you don't even necessarily need to look at the images. I mean, you can, but it's a bit of an inefficient, right? They're telling you what the attributes are. So just kind of build a model. I didn't do the thing you're supposed to do, which is to build a really simple model and move from there. Like I just built a neural net because I wanted to. This is just for fun anyway. Did that, published it. People had a lot of thoughts. They were surprised how good it was, but I was obviously wrong in a bunch of different classes. Partly, I didn't really understand punks. I was still learning. Partly, like the model just didn't model certain parts of the collection well. I mean, it's a very complicated collection because of the exponential distribution. The most valuable punks are worth 100x or more of the lower end ones, which is not really actually something you see in other NFT collections. So you could model this with a linear model, for example, or any sort of regression model. 
you have to sort of handle the exponential nature, historical relationships. So yeah, that's kind of how we got started. I remember when we first met because I had wanted to do automated trading with Top Shot cards, but the ecosystem was just too centralized to actually build on. And then I did it with Zed Run Horses, where just build a simple algorithm to try to price them and buy them and trade them. And that worked really well. And then someone introduced us who said you were doing it on punks. They were all side projects, kind of fun hobbies. And I think we saw something similar. But leaving to do a startup that was really going to focus on this, walk me through your thought process. You could do a lot of things. What made you go in this direction? Oh, yeah. And there's definitely still mornings where I wake up and I'm like, hold on, we're pricing these JPEGs and the market is pretty small. And the whole market cap for valuable NFTs is maybe 20 billion USD at most and probably smaller. It's tiny. Apple headphones are worth more than that. So it's definitely a question that comes up all the time. There's a few interesting things here. So one is I do think that there's a good chance that the crypto space does sort of boom and expand and cover more things which is exciting. And it has certain inherent features to it. I mean, you mentioned the centralization now. So it's not really a rule, but by default, most of the transactions for punks and other NFTs are public. You couldn't get this sort of information easily for, say, used cars or houses or something like that. You could definitely absolutely build really good pricing models for houses and for cars, but it'd be hard to get the data, especially the data you really want. Whereas here, most, if not all, the data is kind of available, which is kind of fun. And the other thing, of course, the market just moves more quickly because, again, there's just the benefits of these digital assets being transferable instantly. You don't have to look at what condition is the punk in. Just the data is cleaner in some ways. But I think beyond that, there's obviously analytics companies and crypto and NFTs, and that's great. But most of the stuff people do tends to be along the lines of something you can compute in Excel. What's the max? What's the min? What's the median? I think that's fine. And I think the pricing thing kind of the stuff I worked on and what you worked on just makes it clear that there's going to be something that people want to know that can be computed in Excel, that there is some machine learning to it. So whether our models are too complicated, not complicated enough, it's significant, but it's not really the point. The point is people do want to know what the pricing is. They want to look at their wallet and be like, what was my collection worth yesterday? What is it worth a month from now? And there are very obvious market signals. So I think we'll see what becomes interesting in two years. But I think for now, this is a quite valuable problem and a hard one. You have to take it seriously. You can't just do it part-time. I forget what it was. I think it might have been Larry Fink or something. I feel as a BlackRock headline was talking about how algorithms are the new oil. And I remember sending an article around and being like, it's not algorithms, it's the data. And that was really in reference to understanding how much alternative data sets were worth. You know, you mentioned Renaissance, just a firm that since the 80s has bought data that the world will never see. And that's been a source of their edge because they know... They have data sets, and now they've got the computing power to sit on top of those data sets. This circles back to kind of where we started with AI in general. But when you build these complex models, and it's interesting in crypto, to your point where the data is public, is that theory wrong that in stuff like this, it's not the data that's available because technically anyone could do it, but the value accrues to the complex models that can use and distribute some sort of value to the end user? Yeah, so to quote my favorite movie, Glengarry Glenn Ross, these Glengarry leads, to give them to you would be to throw them away. You can have the best data in the world. You can give Renaissance data to some random hedge fund. They won't do shit with it. In fact, they'll probably lose money because they'll just build a crappy model that's overfit and they'll just keep delivering reports like all bad machine learning teams do. We're doing a great job. Look at our models. Look at our error rate. And then every month they lose money. It's like not to slam them too hard, but it's like the Zillow thing. 
their CEO thought the same thing. And we have all the data. We should be buying houses, which makes a certain amount of sense. I think before they stopped the program, they were losing something like 5% per house. It was just insane. The data is a necessary but not sufficient condition. Yeah, that's a great example. Now let's get to the weeds of like the NFT space of that. I believe we've mentioned in the past that the punk model is different than the ape model. So this is for people who are really nerdy about NFTs, but why is that? Well, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, I think the punk model would work quite well for apes if we made a few adoptions. But the punk model is actually very expensive to run in two ways. One is literally our GPU costs are high. And two, because there's a speed issue, we do update the punks model with a bit of a delay. The question with the apes model was, could we build something quote unquote simpler that's cheaper to compute that would still be quite accurate? That would move a little bit faster. And I think it's been decent. I mean, I think it's been okay. I think in the long run, they're going to sort of merge realistically. We have been for some time developing a universal model across collections, which I think has a lot of value to it, but that takes a little bit of time. And even then, you would want to still have a simpler model that moves faster. Say a collection drops by 15% in a day. It's nice to have something that can follow that. One analogy I remember from working on an aerospace a long, long time ago was this idea for like an airplane. You can make the plane more maneuverable and more stable. And these things are diametrically opposed in some way. Say you're Boeing, which you're flying from cross country, very stable, very unmaneuverable. It can't turn quickly at all. Whereas your fighter jet, when it's designed, is designed for the maximum maneuverability. But actually, when they build it out for the pilot, they actually make it a little bit less maneuverable in order to improve the stability, just so that it's not shaking for the human. So I think it's a little bit of a trade-off. But obviously, both parts can be improved. Those are like the inherent things you care about. How quickly are we responding to the market, including noise from the market versus being stable in a long-term way? I guess a shorter version to say is the apes model could be a lot more stable and logical the way the punks model is. So that's what we're working on next. There's so many similarities when we're trying to price millions of municipal bonds and people saying, well, that's the pricing service people use because it's good enough. So it's pretty horrible, but it's consistently horrible. So people like it. And you find there's like an edge and mastery or something, but there's an interesting balance there. This is teaching me more about how the models actually work. For people who are familiar with CryptoPunks, there's 10,000 of them. And there's traits that are light more than their linear numbers would say. So you could imagine if I gave you a data set, I've used this as an interview question before for people. If I gave you the punk data set and I said to ordinarily rank which ones were more valuable, like where would you start? It's always funny to see what people would do. But like there's something like hoodies or an example that you might have where there's a lot greater a supply that might suggest the price and how the model handles that and is still able to come up with an accurate prediction. Yeah, because for a while, people were obsessed with rarity. The idea was that rarity would be highly correlated with value, which I think some people still anchor on that, but that's been sort of proven wrong more than it's been proven right. I guess it's one of those cases of something that's better than nothing, but rarity is such a fragile metric. The highest rarity scores is like board apes. It has very little to do with the most valuable ones are. The most valuable ones for board apes are the gold apes, and they're not the most rare. They're also like not the most aesthetically pleasing either, necessarily. It's just that they're gold and people like gold. There's few enough of them, but if there was 30% more gold apes in the original collection, it's an open question how much less they'd be worth. Probably worth a little bit less, but I think they would still be number one. I mean, Azuki is a great example. There's 10,000 of them, and they have way more traits. I think they have something like 400 official traits, something like that. And there's a lot of things that have 20 to 40 items. And some of them are super rare, and some of them are like red earring, and nobody cares. 
And so in the model, walk me through how it handles, one, there was the market expectations that you pointed out, and then the subjectivity of people might want to trade that there's abundance of, but are trading at higher values. In general, if you think about it, what are the inputs and the outputs? So the inputs are the trades and maybe the price history. I think the price history is very valuable. And by that, I mean the sales, the bids, and the asks, what were those relative to the market? I mean, it's incredibly important information, but you have to sort of know how to use it. So fundamentally, the two ways to build a model is either to just fit the trades to what the values should be, or to fit the trades and the market activity on an individual piece. When we do both. So for example, a big difference between the punks and the apes model is the apes model, again, to be fast, fits only to the attributes. Whereas the punk model actually takes account of the individual punk's price history. But if you use that too much, you can sort of overfit a little bit. Somebody overpaid, somebody underpaid, or you develop a gap between items that were bought and weren't bought, were listed, weren't listed. So you have to sort of regress these things. So the punk model is actually maybe a little bit too complicated, but it internally trades a dual model, one that only looks at the attributes and predicts the prices, and the other one that looks at the attributes and the price history and predicts a price. And then it has a step where these models have to agree with each other. So they both try to push each other towards each other so that they reach a sort of consensus. That's why it's expensive to compute, but that's actually what we do. And that's, I think, a long-term solution for all of these things, really. Because you have the situation where, look, I mean, the reality is if people keep consistently buying a certain category and a certain piece a lot, you should take account of that. That matters. At the same time, you don't want to just price the items that sold recently. You do need to have some notion of similarity. So if people tend to be paying a lot for a hoodie, how does that affect similar hoodies? One of the things I loved about NFTs and bonds, which people think is so weird, but to me, they're very similar, (laughs) is that lots of data sets and illiquid markets where the same item doesn't necessarily trade every day. So maybe the example of pricing the aliens where these things do not trade that often, if ever, but yet the price eventually when one comes around, maybe it was seed phrases, ape punk that you nailed with 1%. Like those don't trade that often. And then a trade went off and I'm like, I wonder if they're just going on to deep NFT value and then deciding that's the bid and there's some circularity here or this thing's that good. I've heard from a lot of people that there is a bit of circularity, which is fine. So people do tend to anchor our prices, which isn't a bad thing. But I think part of the reason that they do is, so in the case of that one, yeah, it was pretty amazing to get it within less than half a percent or something crazy like that. In a sense, you could think about that as just being like, oh, this one is listed for 3300 That's a fair price. It's going to get bought at this price. So in a certain sense, you can even think about, oh, like actually a very simple model can decide the pieces that are listed for a good price. They're just going to sell for that price within a day or two. But in order to know that, you need to have a prior. So your prior needs to be like, hmm, this is a pretty good deal. Part of why people trust this is that A, we've been publishing for a long time. And two, we make it very easy to see what are the most valuable within a subset? What is the ordering? And while the ordering isn't always correct, I mean, it is an automated model. We don't tweak it by hand ever at all. Why would we want to? That would take too much time. People do tend to trust the prices because they slot in along with other prices that make sense to them. That's a weird thing that you've noticed that people care a lot, not just about individual items, including items they will never buy, but they really care about ordering. People tend to get pretty upset when there's a few items that are very similar that should be in a certain order, and they're not in that order. Even though a lot of the times I'm like, listen, this is just in the noise. The reality, the model can't really distinguish between these three or four pieces. So the ordering is somewhat arbitrary. If you see if the difference is like 2%, it's not really saying that A is more than B. It's really saying that they're within the margin of error. What are some of the other feedback you get for the people that use this quite heavily? 
One is that we're not necessarily very good, according to people, about pricing the very elite grails, which makes sense. Obviously, the model is inherently pessimistic by nature, which I think is a good thing. So it is going to be a little bit low on some of the grails. It's going to round down. And then the other one is that particularly negative traits are very hard to price. They're pretty tricky. One good example would be on board apes. They're just known traits that are seen as negative by the community. But it doesn't mean that these things go below the floor. What it really does is that if they have other nice traits, having these negative traits tends to sort of kill the value and kill some of the premium. So one example, very simple one, is closed eyes. No one really wants a PFP with closed eyes, blindfold, anything like that, because people want a PFP where you can see the eyes. So there's a few eye configurations, and some are better than others, but more importantly, some are seen as negative. For a floor ape, it doesn't really matter. But if you're buying something a premium, like a spacesuit or a suit or something else that's obviously cool, it does kill the PFP value a little bit. That's something that's known. We could do a little bit better job with that. That's one thing we hear a lot. That's so funny to be an expert in this weird esoteric part of the world. Like how if you show me a bunch, I can almost price them just from staring at them for so long. I do that way too often. But that clean apes have a lot of value. And what it means to be clean is that they're not overly attributed. There's something simple or aesthetically pleasing about them. If you stare at it long enough, you can kind of see it. But then with mutants, the more crazy and bizarre they are, the better they do on price, even though it's a complete opposite, which I've always thought was kind of a cool part of this whole collection. I think both are true. We know the same thing from punks, which is having a very small or very large number of attributes is seen as a premium. The same is true for like dick butts and things like that. You do tend to see that simpler, clean ones and the more messy, crazy ones are the most valuable. Another fun thing you do from time to time where we've had Three Arrows, Blow Up, and FTX, they owned a bunch of NFTs. And there's been these large auctions where there's a block. Talk about how you're able to price when people buy bundles of these really high expensive NFTs. A bundle inherently has to trade for discount. There's no reason for it to trade for premium. People try to come up with ideas why they would, but there's no reason they should. There's no real magic to it other than you're like, well, what are the individual asset values here? And what kind of premium would a market maker want to unload them slowly? I don't think there's any magic there, but I would imagine that they would probably want something like on the order of 20%. It's really hard to imagine somebody wanting to tie up capital and taking ETH risk for significantly less than that would be sort of my guess. I mean, I think the other thing we've done is we have studied the PNL for some of these market makers. I mean, obviously, some trades go off chain or are hard to track. But for the things that they enter in and out on chain, we have some idea what their margins are. And they're pretty high. So people have an expectation of turning their ETH. At the peak, people were doing something along the order of a percent or even a percent and a half per day in ETH terms, which is pretty exceptional. So it really matters how quickly you offload it. Yeah. I don't think they think of it this way. I think they care a little bit more about what their ETH on ETH return is. But there's a big difference between having a floor which you flip for like 5% in ETH, but you do it quickly and pretty reliably versus something that maybe you turn a 20, 30% ETH profit that you're going to have to wait weeks. Completely different profile. How much of the market maker profitability is from algorithmically fast buying when something's listed versus providing liquidity through like resting offers that people eventually hit? I think it depends. For punks, it's obviously mostly there aren't really that many bids. There's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of outstanding bids, but those get arbitraged on other platforms. So I'd say grabbing bad listings is probably a better deal, but you're sort of racing. But people do take wet bids. I think for smaller, more liquid collections, you tend to see there's a big business in wet bidding. And that's hard to even do it as an individual. 
I put out some web bids sometimes just for fun as an individual, and I've never had them accepted. I don't know what the rate is, but my guess is the rate is pretty low. And then also as a person, I'm going to have the expiry be pretty soon because I don't want to have this web bid sitting there for two weeks. I don't want to deal with taking it down if the collection moves. I think bidding is pretty complicated. It's almost like options trading. You have to really be on top of it. If you want to test this application out, you can go to deep NFT value. But are the market makers using APIs or how are they interacting with your model? I think the market makers are a bit secretive. I mean, I think people just look on the website, but we definitely have an open API, which we haven't really been promoting enough, but it's out there. And I think the big thing for us is we're really trying to do this redistribution with some other big providers. Hopefully that really comes online in the next few weeks. I think a lot of them have become more open to it. So I think the idea would be where people already go to get their other crypto and NFT data. We would like for them to have access to our pricing. Just so they get used to it, they run very basic dashboards. You do evaluation of trades or just very, very basic things like what's the most valuable wallet. We have pretty cool stats on our site and it's a very different ordering if you sort by the number of NFTs. Just like a fun fact, I mean, I think the ratio between the lowest value, the median value and the average value for punks is something like 1.0, 1.5, 2.0. So your average punk, the mean is twice as valuable as the floor punk. But a lot of that is top heavy. So the median is like 1.5, which is still a lot. A lot of collections are like this. But for example, Azuki are. Azuki have a pretty steep distribution. There's a pretty significant difference between male and female. Azuki, things like that. The way I think of it is this way. A lot of these Excel type things like floor pricing are good enough for sure. But once the distribution cost goes to zero, why wouldn't you use a more accurate price? It's like when some of us played fantasy football, the projection of who is going to score how many points next week is pretty useful to have and you're going to use it even if it's not completely accurate all the time. And if you're going to use it, you're going to use the best one. Fantasy football certainly was around before they had projections, but once you have projections, you would use them. And it should be everywhere, is my thinking. I think you're right, and it will be. I guess this gets back to your Ben Thompson point at the beginning, where the stuff you're doing doesn't have zero marginal cost, just like chat GBT doesn't. So whether it's your business specifically, or if you don't want to talk about that, in general, when someone's deploying the type of technology you are, how do you think the business model will work if the goal is to distribute it everywhere? I think where people get a little bit stuck is we're still very early. I know crypto people like to say that, but I think the thing that matters right now is really just, do you have something that's valuable enough for people to use it at all and to make it part of their life? I think we're really still in that stage. I think people get a little bit obsessed with how much they can charge, what they can do, as opposed to what are people actually going to be using and doing. So as a result, for example, I'm very glad we didn't get into any sort of market making or marketplace stuff. We could have. We thought about it. We had people that told us we should have. And I'm glad we didn't. It's just good to focus on the pricing. I mean, I do think that there are places that are a little bit more business focused that are willing to pay us for it. Specifically, I think on the NFT loan side for lending. And we have another model that we're coming up with quite soon, which is really pricing things a little bit more pessimistically for lending. So, okay, right now, what we show on the website is really a midpoint. If you tried to sell this at auction right now, what's the midpoint of that auction? We could very easily recalculate everything in terms of, if you had to sell it at auction, are you 90% sure you're going to sell it for this price? And by the way, for certain very liquid things, those prices are exactly the same. But for certain things, they're not. That's something that is just the right answer for that problem. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I think when you enter those loans, they're usually like 30 days in nature, we have an NFT lending platform coming on in the near future. So we can kind of talk about their structure of how they actually do this. But it is interesting to me of 
having a more predictive pricing model to figure out where you should actually lend and potentially borrow from. I think that's kind of an interesting question. What's the good collateral here? That's another example where I would actually say you don't even start with the floor because actually for a lot of more liquid collection, including really nice stuff, the floor overrepresents how much you're going to get. The bid-ask spread is quite large. So if you want to know, okay, what are you going to sell your Fidenza for today or in a month? You actually really want to look a lot more at the standing bids. You have to smooth those out. It just becomes a slightly different question. That is kind of a question that's useful to know is, okay, what's my midpoint? And also, what is my lendable collateral? What's my bearish amount on this? What is it today? What is it tomorrow? A nice thing about evaluating the pricing every day or sort of in real time is there's still a lot of volatility, but at least you would know. At least you would have a very good idea day to day what your current risk profile is for your loan portfolio, which I think is currently also not really available. So as prices move, if they move for or against you, I think you'd have a more clear idea in real time where you're at. Are you getting any signal from the loan market today that feeds back to the mid-price? Is that a valuable signal? People ask that all the time. I guess we'll see. It's a small signal. I think the sale, what people are bidding and selling for is probably still just a bigger signal. People have this interesting idea that NFT lending is getting out of hand. It's adding all this leverage. But then I ask a very simple question. What percentage of these good assets are being borrowed against? It's probably close to 2%. It's still very, very small. Maybe it's higher in some collections, but I don't even think for board apes, I think it's way less than 10%, for example. It's interesting because where leverage was a big part of crypto trading, and maybe it's newer in NFTs, I definitely think there's something very different that people feel when they post something that they like for collateral and the fear of what happens if they lose it. I remember Richard Kim's from Galaxy's long post on his trading into Fidenzas and he had something that was worth an absolute fortune and he borrowed against it because he had so much conviction and he was spot on and right. But then the market moved and the leverage got the best of him. He lost a bunch of assets. I still think it kind of freaks people out. And it seems to me that there's some sort of use case that people want, but there's a specific use case of active trading or trying to free up liquidity to do other trades for like the really active trader, people using it versus the average collector not being as interested in using as a form of leverage. Yeah, I think so. I've never had any personal interest in lending myself, but I know that it's active and people are interested in it. I mean, I think Mandawa certainly showed that there's some appetite for it. I mean, according to our site, I mean, that's one of the bigger wallets. Pretty significant, like low-ish single digits of all apes are in there. It's a big thing. And when the market gets out of whack and people start bombing the floor to move the price to take the loan, like I tried to follow that when that happened with Franklin. Franklin was taking his collection and moving the price down to cause the loans to liquidate to then buy and then the floor moving up. That was like when I first started to think about what its impacts would be. But in general, I definitely see that there's a use case for some people that they have an asset that's considered decent collateral for other people. And then there's other people that are more than willing to loan at double digit interest rates against a piece of collateral that they understand that someone doesn't. So I think for normal people, it sounds absolutely crazy to be any of the stuff that the JPEGs have value in the first place. But If you assume that to a certain group of people they do, then I'm not surprised at all that people would try to find a way to both leverage them up to get more of them, as well as be willing to lend money against them and be willing to take that as collateral in return. That's right. And it has certain advantages, the fact that the vaulting of them doesn't involve any real cost, more or less. It's definitely a cool use case. It's just such a great example of pricing where if you just have very accurate prices in the real time where you know, okay, this is the good collateral here you're very likely to get at least this much 
if you could know that for every collection at every point in time, you can make very reasonable markets. Now, people may not want to trade at those reasonable market rates. They may want more or less, but that's common. That's true for all markets. Like, for example, when people first discover derivatives, they get excited about it. But then you sort of realize that a lot of markets don't really trade. My favorite one is being squeaky, like squared ETH. There's a market for it. It's a thing. But it doesn't really clear because the truth is no one's really excited to be on either side of that transaction. If you're buying that option, your capital is decaying at a pretty fast rate. But on the other hand, do you really want to sell that insurance either? Once in a while, you just get smashed. So I think it's just fun to see which market's clear. And the NFT loan one definitely seems to clear, which is cool. Well, Nicola, it's always fun to catch up. We end these podcasts with the same question. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build or see built over the next six years? Well, over the six months, I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, we want to cover more collections. We want to be able to have these models that are pretty fast and pretty accurate, both for fair trade pricing, which is kind of what our site does, and also the loan collateral side. I think that it'd be interesting to have a few of these different models that both get very nuanced, get into similarities, cross-collection stuff, and also things that are very simple and we could literally roll out in a day. People ask that all the time. Could you get some decent pricing for this collection with enough data in a day? And we definitely need to do that. I think exciting about that is also two things. I mean, one is, as we go further and further along, I mean, lending is a good example, is you have more price history. So something becomes actually more reliable because it's been around for longer. It's sort of surviving the Lindy effect. So I think that's been cool. At the same time, you also do have history and you want to say, okay, well, are there commonalities between collections? Is there a commonality in how they rise and fall, how the distribution of value goes? So this idea of spreading the knowledge, both through history, but across collection is very exciting. In the longer term, the truth is none of us really know what is going to be valuable and interesting in crypto two years from now. But I do think we're going to have more data. There's going to be interesting applications of machine learning that should be tried. And that's the kind of stuff we're excited about. Excited about, again, the fact that this data is by default public. It's not sitting in some silo. That's going to be super exciting. Just think of having these Lambda functions that take data from on-chain and put it back on-chain, essentially, and have people use it to tie it into the algorithms and processes that they want to do. And I think there's just going to be some applications of machine learning that are useful there, and we want to be a part of it. Awesome. Nikolai, thank you so much for your time today. I always learn so much and enjoy our chats. Likewise. Thanks, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 